All right. One messenger, one message, many recipients. Immediately, I'm aware of the fact that I'm out of my pay grade, okay? This is beyond my skill set. And so what I want to do is just bow, and I want to ask you to ask the Spirit of God who has your address to bring to bear that which he has for you today uniquely, specifically, and with great clarity. Would you ask that? I'm going to do the same for myself as we open together. I remember the first time I saw the musical Fiddler on the Roof. The leading character, Tevye, opens with the well-known song, Tradition. (laughs) And he sings, because of our tradition, every man knows who he is and what God expects of him. But you ask, where did our traditions get started? I tell you, I don't know. (laughs) But then he adds, without our traditions, our lives would be as shaky as a fiddler on the roof. You see, the play is the story of the responses of a father's heart when time-honored traditions are torn apart in the midst of a rapidly changing and violent world. Tevye's pain is focused on his three daughters, each of whom, in turn, sever the bonds of sacred tradition in her choice of a husband, each more grievous than the one that preceded her. And in reality, this is every parent's dilemma. Which traditions are negotiable and which are not. And at no time in history was this question more fervently addressed than in Israel the century prior to the coming of Jesus Christ. In 586 BC, the Jews lost their land, their temple, their festivals, and their king. There was only one thing that remained to preserve their national identity. And it was the Torah. And to safeguard it, the rabbis came up with a plan to build fences around it, creating countless oral traditions. It was a good intent, but the impact was devastating. You see, they were trying to establish clear boundary markers in order to preserve their shaky identity so that in the words of Tevye, every man would know who he was and what God expected of him. History tells us that during the Maccabean period, many Jews chose death at the hands of the Romans rather than forsake these traditions. And traditions are everywhere. They're here with us this morning. And they influence almost everything that we do. So before we listen to the words of Jesus, let's place ourselves in the context of Jesus so that the words of Jesus will hit us with the force that they hit the listener of his day. Let me give you some background. Traditions have their benefits. 
but they must not be confused with God-given commands. Tradition should never have the same authority as Scripture. And we have to be honest, we don't always recognize our traditions as comfortable patterns, not God-ordained instructions. And if you doubt the power of tradition, try changing one sometime. Tradition is the handing down of information, beliefs, and customs by word of mouth or by example from one generation to another without written instructions. Traditions are simply the familiar, the habitual patterns of doing things. It's kind of the way we've always done it. They're the patterns that we practice naturally, usually oblivious to their source. Many traditions are helpful. However, they pose one of the most serious threats to authentic maturity and ministry. Now, some of the benefits of tradition, because I'm a lover of some traditions, because they're a part of the fabric of our lives. You see, without traditions, we would not know who we are, our identity. We would not know where we come from, our, our roots. We would not know what we believe, our, our mindset, nor how to behave, our lifestyle. Traditions make life easier. They take the guesswork out. They take the anxiety out. Because traditions... enable us not to have to reinvent the wheel every time we get up in the morning and wonder, what do I do here? They exert a tremendous pull on our emotions because they connect us in profound ways with our past. They provide sameness, security, stability, and they bring all of that from the past to the present, and we go, yeah, yeah, I like that. I like that. The reason that sometimes we react quickly and strongly to those who violate our traditions is that traditions often attach themselves more to our emotions than they do to our intellect. Because traditions just feel right. Try designing a church service or a wedding without tradition and see what happens. Traditions enable us to function effectively in community because they define this comfort zone. They give us a sense of belonging. They provide some commonality in our memories. They aid us in human bonding. They help us perpetuate corporately that which we think and believe to be the positive from the past that we want to bring right up into the present. And traditions can be really helpful in church ministry. Um, most of our religious attitudes and acts are based upon long-standing traditions that originated with really good people who zealously, passionately, and sincerely wanted to walk with God. <laughs> it's largely traditions that define our particular denominational groupings 
like the Evangelical Christian Church of East Keeler, like the Saving Grace Bible Church, like First Baptist Church of New Orleans, like the Third Church of Christ of St. Apollos, you know, like the Presbyterians, like whatever. They define us. And it's not by accident that when we go to different parts of the world and we're within that denominational grouping, we're going to find that they cook their hamburgers the same way that they do in other parts of the world. And the New Testament commends traditions. Though in the Gospels, Jesus warned us about the dangers of the traditions of the elders, and Paul does. You study that in Colossians 2, verse 8. But the New Testament commends it. Jesus was the product of extensive Jewish tradition. Think about it. His circumcision, his naming, his dedication. What was that based on? Tradition. Tradition. Okay? He observed the feast. He worshipped in the temple and synagogue. He, Paul praised the Corinthian Believers for holding firmly to the traditions that he had taught them. And he admonished the wavering Thessalonian to stand firm and hold the traditions which they were taught. Paul passed on doctrinal and practical traditions to the churches among whom he ministered. He never said that there was anything wrong with that. Traditions help us keep on track theologically. The key, however, is that traditions must be firmly planted in the truth of God. Not in the opinion of Kirby Lancaster or Pastor Wassam or of you or any collective of you, but on God. And periodically that requires us then to examine our traditions Though we cannot live without traditions, we must beware lest traditions dictate how we live. You see the difference? Now, that's the backdrop to this hand-washing example that Jesus brings to the fore. The hand-washing practices of the Pharisees provide this classic New Testament example of the negative impact that traditions can have. Now, the the practice is foreign to us, even though we got really sanitized. I washed my hands during COVID more than I've washed my hands in my entire life. You know, like my, my, I could eat off my hands. (laughs) They're just so sterile. But this practice, though it's foreign, it's imperative that we understand it. So take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of Mark. Mark is kind of the, I dare I say, Reader's Digest version of the Gospels. Mark is really terse. Mark gives us the abbreviated version. One of the the familiar words in Gospel of Mark is immediately, because he just moves, 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 moves. And, and I like that. It's a great gospel to, to read, not just with believers, but even with those who don't know Christ, because it changes the channel quickly. Uh, new believers don't like to get enmeshed in all the, just give me the overview here. Let's get a big picture. So let's see what we can learn here.
Begin with me at verse 14. Mark 7. After he called the crowd to him again, and he began saying to them, Listen to me, all of you, and understand there is nothing outside the person which can defile him if it goes into him, but the things which come out of the person are what defile that person. Now, again, just a side truth here. Traditions are easier to obey than what Jesus is saying here. See, traditions focus on actions, while Jesus focuses on attitudes. What is it that motivates our action? In other words, why do you do what you do? It's not just what you do, but what's, you know what you're going to be evaluated at the judgment seat of Christ? All of the things that you've done your whole life? It won't be all the things you've done your whole life. It'll be why did you do the things that you do? How did you do the things that you do all your life? Big difference. Big difference. You see, traditions can be accomplished with gut power, racking the reel, gritting our teeth, clenching our fists, a new resolve, maybe even a New Year's resolution. While God's truth requires something else. Spirit power. The Holy Spirit who bears witness with ours, enabling and energizing us to literally be what God has called us to be. Now Jesus is teaching this message to the crowd. And it's so important, he says, listen up, listen to me, all of you, and understand. And you know what he's saying? Only those who take the time with humble hearts and active minds to meditate on this will penetrate its meaning. Listen up. Listen up. For there's more here to them what meets the eye. It's, it's only for the one who has ears to hear. So Jesus is challenging the crowd. And he's saying, listen, defilement proceeds from where? in here and it comes out it's not from the outside in defilement resides in the human heart and you know what that was a blatant denial of the pharisaical view it was a contradiction so you can tell who <laughs> who really got their nose out of joint as jesus is speaking because the Pharisees taught that defilement and evil was external. It was environmental. And you know what? I grew up in a church that believed the same thing. So good Jews would avoid Gentiles. They would avoid Samaritans. They would avoid tax collectors. They would avoid Sinners. Why? Because defilement, it's out there. Ooh. Ooh. But you can't avoid defilement by trying to steer clear of evil people and places and things. And you can imagine how long the list was. 
I tried to make a list to keep up with what I was supposed to do and not do, and I couldn't keep up. I realized it was a perpetual list and only those with insider information would know how extensive that list was. But here, Jesus is saying the only way to deal with defilement is to deal with the issues of the heart. And this is a revolutionary pronouncement that nothing outside a person can defile him. The heart is the source of spiritual dirt and depravity. Don't polish the exterior and neglect the interior. Now, I hasten to add, this doesn't mean that defilement is unimportant because the New Testament commends purity and condemns defilement. But the source of sin is from within. And sometimes... Traditions can compromise our theology as they encourage us to look toward wrong, externalized solutions for the problem that sin is creating. Avoid the bad people. Avoid the bad places. And while there is some wisdom in this, it subtly communicates the antithesis of Bible truth, namely that defilement is internal and not external and parents we got to guard against this we got to we got to really dial up our sensitivity to this truth in our parenting lest we forget that our children's fallen hearts go with them wherever they go and wherever they might find themselves and that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, not the fear of culture that they are in. And we can put them in a Christian school, but you know what? I work at a Christian school. I work with Christian teachers. And you know what I do a lot of times? I try to get Christian teachers to play nice, to share to clean up the mess when they make it relationally with somebody else. Why? So that their lives can be appropriate models to the one who are watching them. Because our kids have darkened hearts if they don't know Jesus. And they're going to battle with sin even if they do know Jesus. And this will equip us. Tradition may hinder effective ministry. Look at verses 17. And following, it says, And when he later entered a house away from the crowd, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Are you so lacking in understanding as well? Do you not understand that whatever goes into the person from outside cannot defile him because it does not go into his heart, but into his stomach and is eliminated? Thereby he declared all foods clean. And he was saying, that which comes out of the person, that is what defiles the person. For from within, out of the hearts of people, come the evil thoughts, acts of sexual immorality, thefts, murders, acts of adultery, deeds of greed, wickedness, deceit, indecent behavior, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these things come from within and defile the person. Now, who's he teaching here? 
Who's he explaining this to here? Well, it's to the disciples. And according to Jesus, the hand-washing traditions of the Jews not only contradicted the truth of Scripture regarding defilement, he says, listen, they're not necessary anymore. The Old Testament food laws have been now superseded. You see, the logical implication of Jesus' biological lesson here is that no food, unwashed, hands, no kind of pot or pan are inher inherently defiling. Get this. You can eat anything. Pork, shrimp, ostrich. Can you, can you see the Hebrew mind just kind of going, <laughs> what? The food laws of the Jews had a positive theological purpose. It was to set the Jewish people apart as God's chosen ones. So why the change, Jesus? Why? Because if the food laws of the Jews were allowed to continue while God was raising up this new global family headed by Jesus Christ, one that included Jews, one that included half-breed Samaritans, one that included Palestinians, one that included Gentiles, the likes of you and of me, that would, there would be insurmountable division and disunity because the food laws would be this in-your-face constant reminder that this distinctive people maybe had a superiority. And Jesus wasn't going to tolerate that because he, he wanted to make sure that they didn't block some of the new spirit-led things that he was about to do. What Jesus is teaching here was revolutionary. This truth was so uncommon in contemporary Judaism that it was destined to free Christianity from the bondage of legalism. For the Jews of the day, this was incredible. Now, get this. Years later, Paul is no longer a novice to following Jesus. He's experienced in preaching the gospel. And yet Paul still had trouble in thinking that he could be defiled by what came in. You remember that? The problem was so acute that the Lord lowered a sheet filled with animals three times. Three times. And the vision not only prompted Peter's ministry to the unclean Gentiles, but it revealed the magnitude of the obstacle that was in the Hebrew mind. And what had to change? Look at verses 14 and 15. They were clear enough. But look at verse 17. In verse 17, the disciples still don't get it. And they, they said, tell us, explain this parable. But it wasn't a parable. It was straightforward. But their mindset created such obstacles that they weren't understanding it. And so Jesus spells it out in verses 18 and 19. Really, really clear. It's amazing. And then he teaches them about what comes out by addressing the heart. 
And the, the list there, there's a, there's a hideous list of ugly words. They're dark and they're grim, but they are the litany of the human heart. The human heart is an idol factory. And without the reigning, ruling presence of King Jesus, the human heart is capable of some, of all of these ugly expressions. Now, we're not going to camp on those today. But if you want to do a study of what the human heart is capable of, that is a study. But the Pharisees' problem was that they had the Scriptures, but they had a defective theology of man and of sin because they treated symptoms superficially with legalistic do's and don'ts rather than dealing with the root cause. It's kind of like if you got weeds growing up between the bricks or the footpath and you're constantly trimming the weeds off, you're going to trim those weeds till Jesus comes. Okay? You're never going to get ahead of it. You got to pull those babies up from the roots. And that's no guarantee they won't come back. But oftentimes we deal superficially. That's why we recycle our sins rather than repenting and experiencing spirit-wrought victory. Doesn't mean we won't be tempted in the same way. We will. <laughs> Temptation isn't sin. Jesus was tempted, tried, tested in every way that we are. Pulled it off sinlessly. We can't say that, but we can sin less than we do, but we'll never get to a place where we're sinless. Pharisees just wanted to clean the cup. They're the ones that came up with the show, wasn't the Brits keeping up appearances? Adam and Eve tried it. Trouble is, fig leaves don't last very long. And all of a sudden, the reality begins to show. And the only hope of cleansing the human heart is regeneration. There has to be a radical birth from above, not a boost from below. And so we see where this issue of purity and cleansing is leading. What began as a dispute about hand washing escalated to an attack on tradition over Scripture, and now it finds its climax in defining the real issue of what constitutes cleanliness. Purity is not defined by what you eat. Purity is defined by what issues from the heart. If you go to the marketplace, it's not what you take in and eat. It's what issues from your own heart. And the word heart is a key term in this chapter. You'll find it over and over again. I love that verse. It says, nothing which goes into a man from outside can defile him since it doesn't touch the heart. It enters the belly and is eliminated. I looked up the word eliminated. You know what that literally means? passes into the latrine. That's pretty defining. And to make sure his readers didn't miss the implication of this, Mark adds this revolutionary conclusion of Jesus, thus he declared all foods clean. Jesus could not have stated this more categorically and more openly than he did, and praise God, he did it only with the disciples. Had he done it in public, 
it probably would have incited a riot because he's nullifying tradition that came from Scripture. He's just undone 1,400 years of tradition of Israel's dietary laws. But it was these very laws that Israel had clung to so tightly that made them unique. How could he do that? Well, we've already in part answered it, but Jesus didn't come to nullify the law. He came to what? Fulfill the law. That's right. By inaugurating a new covenant that would place God's law in our hearts. Moses wrote about that in Deuteronomy 30. Moreover, Yahweh, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the hearts of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul so that you may live. And when that day arrived, and it did arrive when Jesus came, the law gave way to reality. The shadow gave way to the substance and the beauty of Christ. So how do we preserve our sacred identity as followers of Jesus in an ever-changing, decaying, and darkening world? What traditions should you and I preserve? Well, let me give you four principles rather than st stating the four traditions, okay? Here's four takeaways. Number one, focus on the heart. When the apostles speak of purity in the New Testament, the issue is never one of ritual, of diet, or washings. It is solely a matter of the heart. Focus on the heart. Secondly, realize that relationships take priority over food. Relationships take priority over food. Whenever a question arose about purity and food, the apostles responded by saying, hey, relationships trump, okay? Um, this explains a verse in Paul's letter to Timothy, which I didn't think about until this past week. When Paul's writing young Timothy, he says, take a little wine for the stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, I'm not going to get into the wine, okay? You can ask your pastor about that. But at first, the verse seemed out of context, since Paul is writing about the ordination of elders. But the larger issue is purity. In order to maintain purity as an elder, Timothy had begun to abstain from wine. But the impure water in the area in which he was ministering was taking a great toll upon his rather vulnerable immune system. And Paul's answer is that it's far more important for the purity of the church as to whom you lay hands on as an elder than what you drink. Timothy, a little wine will do you no harm, but an impure elder, that'll kill you. That'll destroy you. And that same governing principle applies to abstaining from certain foods or drink. Remember Paul? Paul said, he, I'm free to eat meat. I can even eat meat that's been sacrificed to idol, and I got it on a discount at the idol 
meat shop. But if I come into the presence of a weaker brother, I'm not going to eat meat. See, that's not inconsistent. That's wholly consistent. He, He was flexible to be whatever God wanted him to be. He became all things to all men that by all means he might win some. That's a lot of all for a few. What a guy. Pure relationships meant everything. Food meant nothing. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Thirdly, responsibility takes priority over devotion. Sometimes in some churches today, there's a driving concern for the number of people getting involved in Christian ministry, and that's kind of a badge of honor, a sign of success. Wow, we've got 527 people involved in ministry. Really? Wow. Ooh, yay. But the apostles, they weren't often talking about that kind of thing. They were far more concerned with ethical purity within the church. For example, the early church had a large population of widows and the church subsidized financially the widows. And in return, they received the benefit of these widows because they could get time. They had time. And they served the church in awesome ways. But you know what? Paul warned Timothy not to place a widow on the list. Don't subsidize a widow that has surviving Children, why did he do that? Because to the apostle, it was more important to fulfill the fourth commandment that children honor their parents than it was to get more full-time workers for the church. Why? Because anyone who does not provide for his own and especially for those of their own household has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Do you see what he's saying? Ethical responsibility is more important than religious service. Who you are before God is more important than what you do for God. Get that into your head. God doesn't need us. But in His wisdom that we'll never be able to plumb the depths of, He has chosen to use us. Bless His name. We can be co-laborers to God but we're not bringing something to the table that God lacks, for He lacks no thing. But apart from Him, we can't do anything. And the last takeaway, the real dangers to purity are the affections of this idol factory we call the heart, safeguarded at all cost. Guarded. Guarded, for out of it flow the very issues of your life. This is fundamental to our purity. Keep tradition and truth separate in your mind. Your growth will depend upon it. Remember that traditions tend to reinforce external acts, not heart attitudes. Give me one pure and holy passion. Give me one magnificent obsession. Give me one holy ambition for my God to know and follow hard after you.
That's all heart. And without it, God will never, never be pleased or praised. So keep the way you do things open to God's directive because only Scripture is primary and authoritative. Thus saith the Lord, not Kirby. Let's pray. Father, there is no one like you. Where else can we go? For you alone have the words of eternal life. The gospel is perpetually relevant in our lives. We don't, we don't just come to you and hear the great news of all that you've done for us and step into this new life and it's over. We need the gospel every single day of our life and many, many times in it. So remind us of that, we pray. Give us a, an ever-increasing desire for you. Give us a love for you that will know no limits. Search our hearts and try us. And if you see anything at all, Father, that is untoward, that should not be there, then we ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would, you would do whatever is necessary to bring us back into a right relationship with yourself. Thank you for that perpetual ongoing cleansing from sin that we realize in Jesus Christ. Now I ask that by your Holy Spirit, you would take this singular message and apply it to me and to each and every one of my brothers and sisters gathered here this morning in a way that's so inescapably specific that it will allow no wiggle room, no measure of comfort for us to, to somehow avoid what it is that you're wanting and asking of us. And we'll thank you for what you'll do in Jesus' name. Amen.